thanks to Albina Community Bank for supporting Biz 503, the new business talk show on Portland Radio Project. Albina is banking on all of us. Did you know your zip code might be more important than your genetic code in determining lifelong health and your risk of disease? It's true. According to researchers, people who grow up in food deserts may be at greater risk for things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and many other health outcomes simply because of inadequate nutrition in the early days of life. Today on Biz 503, our subject is food deserts and the small business that are popping up around Portland to improve people's access to groceries. Food deserts is a term the U.S. Ag Department used to describe communities without adequate access to healthy groceries, and there are several such areas around Portland. I'm Mark Grimes, entrepreneur, startup founder at NedSpace and co-working spot in downtown Portland. And I'm Rebecca Webb with Portland Radio Project. We'll be your hosts this afternoon. Amazing, right in the middle of a foodie paradise that there could be food deserts, right? In the studio with us to help us understand more about food deserts and why easy access to good nutrition matters is Monica Cuneo, Health Equity Project Manager at Portland State University. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. We're glad you're here. So am I. What is a food desert? So the term food deserts came up in the 1980s to 90s to really describe areas that had limited access to full-service grocery stores that offered healthy foods. And the term has grown in nuance to unpack what exactly is meant by this term access. It now envelops affordability, both real affordability and perceived affordability, as well as access to transportation to get people to the store. That could include public transportation, car ownership, sidewalks, as well as cultural norms, and if the stores have uh, food that is culturally appropriate. Essentially, the work around food deserts has turned into understanding that putting a grocery store into a neighborhood that needs one, or what is called typically like a geographic fix of just plopping a store down in in what is known as a food desert doesn't always work. And we need to understand and consider the multiple factors that might inhibit access to healthy foods. Okay, talk a little bit more about uh, the real versus perceived affordability. Why is that a distinction? Well, there's a lot of, I'm I'm sure that you've experienced this, that you have relationships with the stores that you shop at. Uh, some of them, you may, you may choose not to shop at a store because you perceive them to be out of your price range or sometimes, quite frankly, under your price range. And so people choose stores based on where they feel comfortable, where they feel like they can, um, that they can purchase the foods that they want to without having many barriers. So sometimes that's, that's real. Sometimes the stores really are out of someone's price range. And sometimes stores have a kind of connotation or can signify a, a financial relationship that may or may not be real. I know 25 years ago or so, uh, the Tannisborn area would have been considered kind of a food desert. I mean, they mm-hmm. had a hard time keeping grocery stores mm-hmm. alive out there. I'm wondering how much of it's kind of driven by the community around it and how much by the grocery stores themselves wanting to open up into the into the market, into the area. It's a good question. Um, I'm not familiar with that specific mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. and what the what the relationships were there. Mm-hmm. But that's a real that's a real question and concern for a lot of neighborhoods. I know that Portland in the past, Sam Adams put out a uh, request for applications for grocery stores to develop in food deserts across the city. And what the proposal was asking for was trying to get full-service grocery stores, anything from a, a co-op or a Safeway, to develop in areas that needed 
more full-service grocery stores. And they provided incentives to be able to encourage businesses to have a brick-and-mortar location. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that the community would have welcomed it with open arms or that it would have been the store that really provided definition and identity for the community. So there's a lot of considerations to take into account. Let's say I'm a mom with three kids and no car, Mm -hmm. and the closest store to me is more than a mile away. Do I have access to groceries? That's a great question, and I think it allows us to kind of unpack, again, this this term around access. And in general, when, when you're when you just set up this situation of the mom with no car, transportation has been used quite a bit as an indicator to understand a community's uh, level of access to food because it can be such a real barrier for many people to successfully accessing, getting to the stores around them. Right, because if you've got three kids in tow mm-hmm. and you have to get on the bus... If mm-hmm. there is a bus that serves your area mm-hmm. and go to the grocery store, first of all, you're limited in how many groceries you can then carry. Right. So that's and that's great. So when you look at a community and you want to understand what is their level of food access, you can look at what is the amount of car, car ownership, which is uh, pieces of data that you can find. You can also look at what are the public transportation lines. Where do they travel? Do they travel near the store? They, do they travel farther away from the store? How frequently do they go there? Are there sidewalks so that she could walk with her kids or take a um, bike to the, to the store? So there's a couple ways to look at it. Mm-hmm. When you look at some of the existing new technologies that are out there today, like say, well, this isn't really technology, but like Uber that's new to Portland, mm-hmm. are, you, are you seeing that as some things that are maybe providing some helpful solutions in that area? That's an interesting idea. Um, brings up a couple thoughts. It, certainly cabs historically and taxis have been used Mm -hmm. for larger shopping trips. So if you aren't able to take the bus or take your kids plus your multiple bags of groceries, that cabs are an option. Although, of course, those have high costs associated with them. There's also things like car sharing or the car-to-go. However, car-to-go in our area has, as far as I understand, has stopped a lot of service in East Portland. So in in areas where we see the highest need for and the highest gap in access to healthy foods, there's also increasingly limited options uh, for some of the alternate alternate car options. Mm-hmm. So what about these lifelong consequences that mm-hmm. uh, I alluded to at, at the open? Why are the early days of life getting uh, good nutrition so important? So a lot of my work that I do at Portland State University is in partnership with Oregon Health and Sciences University and the research that comes out of the Moore Institute for Nutrition and Wellness. And the work that they're doing there is doing a lot of research to understand a framework called the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. This framework was developed by a late doctor named David Barker, who spent the greater part of his uh, latter part of his career at OHSU kind of evolving and translating this science. And what he found uh, when he compared a lot of data sets looking at birth and mortality data was that low birth weight had a relationship with later in life disease. His initial findings were around heart disease and as the science has evolved They've found that it also has relationships with uh, later in life obesity, chronic disease, types of cancer, mental health, educational attainment, kind of more and more things are being found out about it. So the, the link to this conversation is the risk factors associated with low birth weight. So a low birth weight is a 
really great measure that's used to determine um, growth while in development. And the first thousand days refers to essentially conception through about age two. This is a very critical period for the developing fetus and the infant to have access to those healthy foods. We're very careful to say, though, that while the mother is the environment for this developing fetus, really it's the broader community that helps to support the health of the mother. So when we're talking about healthy food access, it's one thing to say that, you know, behaviorally we can all make choices um, that are sometimes helped or inhibited by the community that surrounds us. Talk about some of those socioeconomic factors. Who lives in food deserts. Right, so that's another component. So another risk factor associated with low birth weight is the cumulative stress that the the mother and the community experiences. So this, and this is around social stress. So this isn't how stressful your day job is, but how often are you exposed to discrimination based on the color of your skin? Uh, have you been in poverty for most of your life and you have low access to housing? Food is certainly a a, a piece of this puzzle. Uh, within public health, we use the term social determinants of health. And essentially, it's referring to a person's access to essential resources to be able to have a, a thriving life. So food is a piece of that. Have you seen kind of some of the edible schoolyards and edible schools that, that have developed some programs that have been instituted to try to help some of these in some of the food desert areas? Yeah, I think that the there's the, the school food movement, both farm to school, as well as at the federal level of improving the nutrition in lunches, is a really wonderful policy option and policy effort to try to equalize the playing field. Because kids, some research shows that kids end up eating about two-thirds of their calories between uh, preschool and school and sometimes after school activities. If school is seen as an opportunity to have that healthier food access, they're going to get a larger proportion of their uh, nutrition and healthy foods at schools than they might be able to access outside of school. Are food deserts, Monica, more common than they used to be, or are mm. we just finding out more about them now? The research around food deserts came up uh, again in kind of the, the late 20th, 21st, 20th century. As we saw our cities really changing. So what we saw was the something, a term perhaps you've heard of, of white flight from our urban areas. And what happened was a lot of the full-service grocery stores tended to follow the affluence that left the cities. And so we, we saw kind of a, a glut and a removal of these larger grocery stores in urban areas. Um, so what we're seeing now as, as we kind of are understanding a little bit more nuance of what the word, of what access means, we're also look. I actually like to challenge the term food desert a little bit because often what we see now in the, the urban areas where we saw the biggest amount of, of flight are, it's not a food desert, it's just a desert of healthy foods. So we end up having uh, more convenience stores, more fast food store, fast fast food restaurants, less full-service grocery stores. Another piece of this is that uh, there's a little bit of a, a mixed understanding. So within the a lot of the mapping data or other types of, um, like the, uh, the USDA that compiles data to understand where food deserts exist from um, 
from a non-grassroots source, uh, they use something called the North American Information Classification System. And this, this is a very large data set of a number of different things, but one of the things that it includes is the number of grocery stores in an area. The problem with this is there's two problems. One is that this information is self-reported. So a store could say, if I sell lemons, I sell, I sell fresh food. So I'm going to check my I'm going to check the box that says that I'm that I'm part of that group. The other thing is that they actually allow corner stores to classify themselves as grocery stores. So within one neighborhood in East Portland, they actually scored really high. They said that based on mapping data, it wasn't a food desert. And part of the reason was because it was using these secondary data sources when we actually surveyed the community members, they were very aware that this that they had low access to healthy food, but it was different than what the quantitative uh, measure said. So more or less food deserts. It's it's I think it's hard to tell because we're understanding more components of these terms. So when you look at a Southland Corporation or Seven Eleven selling lemons, and you know that now suddenly counts as a grocery store. What are some of the other data that, that you can measure that's changing moving forward where you can get some more accurate and real numbers then? Well, uh, I think a lot of the efforts that are happening at the community level, so doing more qualitative surveys, doing ground ground truthing. I know with, with GIS mapping, you can go in, instead of taking secondary data sources to then fill in the map, do a windshield tour, actually go into the neighborhood and either compare to the, to the addresses that popped up on your map and say, does that store really exist? Is that a shuttered building now? Is that a 7-Eleven or is that a Safeway? And then actually compare and ground truth it. I love the term ground truthing. And we have a couple of people uh, who are coming in who can maybe do a little ground truthing for us because they are in the neighborhoods. Some of Portland's entrepreneurs who are starting up new businesses to meet the need for healthy groceries when we come back. Portland Radio Project, you're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show or stream us online at prp.fm. Thanks to our sponsor, Albina Community Bank, a full-service independent community bank and a proud supporter of PRP. Next up, back to Biz 503. Welcome back to Biz 503. Today we're looking at parts of Portland without ready access to healthy food, food deserts, and little businesses that are arising to meet the need. I'm Mark Grimes with NetSpace here with Rebecca Webb. We talked a few minutes ago about new research that traces the roots of disease to inadequate nutrition in the early days of life. Joining us now, Brandon Rhodes of Rolling Oasis Grocers, which delivers healthy food by bike. Brandon, welcome. We're glad you're here. You're going to want to get right up on that microphone. Okay, tell us about Rolling Oasis, the story. How did it come about? It came about after, let's see, five years of living in the Lentz neighborhood of Portland, which is a recognized food, food desert, and living a low-car life there, realizing, wow, this is a real pain to be able to get fruits and veggies, groceries in general, back home. So I was brainstorming over some tacos in my neighborhood with my friend Scott Davison, <laughs> who runs a great nonprofit called VocoForm, which does social enterprises around town. And he threw this idea out at me, and I ran, or rather pedaled with it. Fantastic. I, I know there's a uh... 
a few bike deliveries in Portland, but mainly mm-hmm. primarily downtown. So mm-hmm. you guys obviously decided to fo- you decided to focus on kind of a difficult market. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those services wouldn't work out there because it's more uh, a la carte than it is curated. So you have to pay a premium for that to be able to actually get people fruits and veggies. Uh, There's a great service that has an app called Instacart. Uh, In order to be able to make that work, getting it right to your door within two hours, they have to use a motor vehicle, they have to charge you extra, they hide that through inflated prices on their website, and the employees don't get paid. Great. Mm. And so uh, choosing to stay out here and work on a business model that can create living wage uh, income without passing that on to my neighbors is a really foundational goal. So, so as a startup, how did you kind of, how did you launch and how do you market and get some of the new first time clients? Every step of that has been a learning process for me. It's not, enterprise is never anything I was expecting to go into. I, we pulled out the savings to make this happen as a family. And uh, the real uh, head scratcher has been in terms of marketing and building up more and more customers is how do you do that without a brick and mortar location, without an app? You know, we're trying to innovate grocery delivery in a post-retail time. People could say this is sort of the Uber for food, but we want to be the Uber for food that is for everybody. And healthier foods. Have you partnered and worked with some local CSAs out there? Assuming there are? I am in the early stages of doing that. Probably won't be ready for next year, but the year after, my neighbor David works for one. And just if people don't happen to know, that's community sustainable agriculture where you can order a basket delivered every week, right? Yep, it's a community-supported agriculture where you're buying a share of the crop. Mm-hmm. So, okay, good. Well, tell us what you have. What do you offer? And mm-hmm. uh, we're getting into some rainy weather. Is that going to be okay <laughs> yes, for your bicyclists? Uh, yes, it will be just fine, in particular because it means our customers will not be out there in the rain. So it's a weekly subscription service of organic fruits and veggies, $20 a week. Easy to sign up online at rollingoasis.com. Right now, it's just in the Lentz neighborhood, and I bring it right to people's doors once a week. And th- that $20 gets you what you would have gotten for $20 at Fred Meyer in the organic section. Interesting idea. Okay, and now with us as well, Amelia Pape with My Street Grocery. Welcome, Amelia. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Tell us the story of My Street Grocery. My Street Grocery was originally developed in 2009 when I was in graduate school at Portland State University, and it was really a research project around food access, and it turned into a passion and and a business, and so we launched our first pilot program in 2011, and the be- the business began to run full-time in 2012, and um, it's still running today now as a program of Whole Foods Market. So the concept has evolved and grown, but it's uh, always been rooted in the mission to improve access to fresh, healthy foods. So I first met Amelia when she was pitching the the program at PSU and congratulations on the success. Thank you. So what, since Whole Foods has kind of taken it over or or working with you, partnering with you, how have they grown and how has the program evolved? It's been such a wonderful transition to work with Whole Foods Market because now we have a more robust assortment. Um, We have a vehicle that customers can walk inside of, which means that we have a year-round service. So in the winter when it's rainy and when it's more difficult for people to get out and when farmers markets are no longer operating, we can still be there for our customers 
customers. We have the same quality standards as Whole Foods Market, which means that we get some of the highest quality of products around. We are just steeped in resources that allow us to really expand and support our mission. So it's been a really exciting change. What kinds of products do you offer and what kinds of price points are people looking at as, as your consumers? We try to create a shopping experience that feels like your basic staple grocery items. So we have a healthy pantry section. We really focus on cooking because we try to provide some education around how to make fresh foods affordable. And we believe that cooking at home is really an exciting and effective way to do that. So we have fresh seasonal produce. We have refrigeration and freezers on board. So we can even carry a frozen fresh fruits and veggies selection, which is really great for winter. It's great for affordability. It's really great for people who are just starting to get into produce and feel a little bit nervous about the perishability of something fresh. And our price points are really researched around what we feel like is accessible to the community. So we always enter into a community in partnership with that community. We do a lot of work, listening sessions and focus groups beforehand to understand the needs and to tailor our service to every location that we go. Um, And so we have a pricing structure that is focused on affordability and accessibility and also transparency. So for example, we sell all of our produce by the unit instead of by the pound. We have a lot of customers who are learning to stretch their budget and who are just starting to change the way that they shop. Because if you're used to shopping for foods that are not perishable, maybe you can shop once a month. But when you're starting to shop perishables, it's more of a once a week shopping experience, which is a different budgeting mentality. So it's we do a lot of personal shopping with customers, but it's a little easier to say this apple's 50 cents, this apple's 50 cents versus some price per pound that sometimes can surprise people at the register. And how are you working with Whole Foods to roll this out in other cities or is it still kind of under evaluation at this point? We're really focused on Portland right now because we want to make sure that we get the business model right, that we honor the place that we started and that embraced us in the beginning. This is my home. This is the community that I know and love. And we do want to grow, but we want to make sure that it's responsibly. And we know that food access is a deeply nuanced and deeply personal issue. So mobile grocery is one solution to that, but it might not be the right one for each community. So as we do grow, we want to do a lot of work within that neighborhood in new cities and understand if mobile grocery is the one that's right for them or if maybe we can support food access in another way. So Portland is still kind of the home, the flagship program, um, and we'll continue to work with new communities as the need arises. Brandon, were you surprised uh, to learn about My Street Grocery? These great ideas come up so often in Portland. I was thrilled to find out about it. And what about uh, partners with an organization like Whole Foods, for example? Do you have anything like that going, or do you wish you would? I'm not currently interested in that. Our business model is set up to be uh, light and nimble to be licensed in other neighborhoods. So I'm in conversation with half a dozen folks across Portland on both sides of 205 to be able to make this happen in those neighborhoods for a very lean startup uh, cost. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we were looking at a map that was published mm-hmm. in the Oregonian. In fact, we should ask uh, our social media, Rebecca Wittenstein, to tweet that out because it's really interesting to look at it. They're all concentrated right around 205 for the most part. It's a mm-hmm. very southeast Portland issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're, I'm talking with folks in the Rosewood neighborhood. Uh, they, there's a great nonprofit out there that is doing a variety of community building efforts, and they are quite 
curious to see if they can have this be a part of their solution to enriching life in the other Portland. Can you both talk about the people that you are encountering as your customers? Who are they? What are they like? How do you feel about them? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, like I've said, we always enter into a new community in partnership with the residents of that community. it's, it's really important to build trust and to build relationships to make any service like this successful. So I feel very close to my customers. I feel very personally connected. And I think that those relationships are what allow us to really serve their needs effectively because social appropriateness is a huge barrier to food access. And I, I know that um, this has been a part of the conversation before, but sometimes food is available and it's it's within a price point that works and it's within the neighborhood and people still don't feel like it's for them. And so that's a really sad barrier that we really want to work to overcome. And that is about building trust and building relationships and creating a safe space for people to ask questions and to feel like they can just take a breath. Many of our customers kind of live these lifestyles of urgency where they never have a moment to just let their hair down. And we want to create that environment we say food is community because that's truly kind of the higher purpose of this and that's what makes food accessible and that's what makes it not only accessible but joyful. And so the relationship to our customers is the absolute core part of our business. Can you open that up a little bit more? Because, of course, you know, in my mind I picture you driving around with music going like a popsicle to rock, you know, tossing out kale and spinach and obviously that's not the case. So how do you start to develop those those relationships and, and get that going? Well, since we've been around for a few years now, we get a lot of requests from neighborhoods, sometimes from organizations and sometimes just from residents of communities. And we always follow up on those and try to understand what the need looks like. And oftentimes we do listening sessions. So we'll just gather residents in a place that makes sense for that community and have some snacks and just ask questions and start a dialogue. We try to make sure that the way that the conversation goes makes people feel like they can speak. So um, a traditional focus group works in some places, but not in all. And it's really about time. So this is not a process that can be rushed. And um, a lot of times we'll start by participating in a community event that's already going on where people already feel comfortable. We also work with organizational partners like schools and clinics, and those are already trusted spaces in many communities that already have a strong network. So when we work in partnership with those organizations, we have a little bit of a built-in trust that we can work from, and we find our community partners and our community advocates that can speak um, speak the language for us and can teach us about that neighborhood. So it's really an organic process. Brandon, how well do you know any of your customers? I know quite a few of them quite well, and I enjoy meeting more and more of them every week. They are a really wonderful cross-section of my neighborhood from immigrants to uh, pastors to stonemasons to bud tenders. There's stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads. There's uh, one-income households and four-income households, and finding a way to make this work for them has been a really fulfilling experience to be able to check in and hear, oh, wow, you've just had a baby, congratulations, and what dietary changes can I bring into that to help better support your family? It feels like it's moving back to the old style grocery of the you know early 1900s of where you really know your patrons and you really know who these people are. Absolutely. Uh, my friend Paul Sparks has a very good phrase that I've, I, I liked it, uh, uh, but I didn't know it until the past year and a half. And it's to be a known character in your neighborhood. 
uh, and I found that to be uh, so. The Z House Brew Pub just opened up right in the Lens Town Center, and I was there opening uh, day, enjoying a couple happy hour pints, and looking around and seeing. I think I saw over eighty percent of my customers there, and I'm sure there were more of them. I just had never met them face to face. It was a really special experience. Uh, the Holiday Bazaar last year, having a variety of folks. I've been wanting to ask you this about that. It's, it, I've lived in the neighborhood since 2008, and to feel a sense of belonging without it breaking their bank is just such a joy. Amelia, just before we let this part of the subject go, I, I'm wondering if you've ever had an occasion. Have you ever had anybody that you couldn't serve or who seemed to feel intimidated and maybe couldn't afford the food? Of course. I think that we, we always have situations where we wish that we could serve our customers more effectively. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is, is language barrier. We work in East Portland and there are many, many different languages spoken in, in Rockwood, which is where we have our market. And one of the most difficult things is when a customer or a family comes up and I know that we can't communicate with them verbally and that creates a barrier that is a, is a real challenge. So that's something that we are continuing to think about how we can support that through um, transla translation services with our materials and through team members who can speak different languages. But that's that's something that's always going to be a challenge, particularly in these very diverse neighborhoods. And that's where our partnerships come into play. So when we are able to work through organizational partners, they can provide some of those services that we can't. And I think that that kind of leads into part of the partnership philosophy of our program, which is that food access touches so many different parts of our lives and we bring food into the community and that's the beginning of the work. So we work with, like I said, schools, with clinics to provide food prescription programs, which have been a great part of our work. We work with local government, we work with residents and all of these different partners provide different pieces of the service and they create a full basket of resources that allows it to be a more effective service all of the way around. So we consider ourselves a part of a network, not the only piece of the service. Basket is such a great metaphor for what we're talking about. Rolling Oasis and My Street Grocery, a couple of interesting answers to food deserts. Other solutions include special markets and farmers markets, and we're going to meet some folks involved with those after a very short break. Portland Radio Project. You're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show or stream us online, prp.fm. Thanks to our sponsor, Albina Community Bank, a full-service independent community bank and a proud supporter of PRP. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Rebecca Webb, along with Mark Grimes. We are your hosts on Biz 503. Today, we're talking about solutions to food deserts, since there are parts of Portland where healthy food is not easily attainable. If you look at a map of local food deserts from the U.S. Ag Department, you'll see they nearly all on the east side of Portland. That brings us a significant socioeconomic aspect of food deserts. They're most commonly found in communities of color and low-income areas. A little bit earlier in the show, we learned that inadequate nutrition in the very early days of life can lay the groundwork for developing disease later in life. And in the last segment, we met entrepreneurs who are 
popping up to offer creative ways of getting groceries to people. Now to look at other solutions to food deserts, we're joined by Avery Lewis, founder of Woodlawn Farmers Market. Welcome, Avery. Thank you. Farmers markets really are not one of the newer solutions, even though they're a wonderful response. How long have, have they been around? Farmers markets have been around for a very, very long time. And uh, I think one of the interesting things about them is that most places in the world, this is how people get their food. You don't see people going to supermarkets in South America very often. You see them going to their local market, and that's where food is affordable. So that's something we're trying to recreate in our neighborhood and I think in Portland in general. I know this is the first year you launched it. Can you kind of share the the, the hero story of how you started it and why and that kind of thing? I don't know if I would call it a hero story. It was actually somewhat um, selfish. I really wanted a market that I could walk to. I just ride a bike. So um, getting to the King Market, which is the next closest market, is kind of a venture for me, especially if I'm going to be carrying groceries back with me. So that's where it all began, is wanting to be able to walk down my own street and buy kale and turnips and those sorts of things. So we applied, me and a couple of neighbors applied for a small grant through the Northeast Coalition of Neighborhoods, and we were awarded the money and so launched the market. Fantastic. Talk to us about the development. What did you do to get it up and running? Well, we got the grant funding just a couple of months before our launch date. So it was um, kind of a rat race, and we began targeting what we considered anchor vendors, so vendors who had a name for themselves and who many people were familiar with, and we thought that this would help us um, really bring in customers to the market. And we found that that wasn't the answer and that anchor vendors, because they have such a following, they require a certain number of customers to be there to to meet their costs. So we ended up looking at smaller farms, at small urban farms and startup farms, and they have been just wonderful. They have been excellent vendors. And so that was the step one was getting our vendors. And then, well, how do we tell people about it? And how do we market this thing? And um, we were able to forge a partnership with Self Enhancement Inc., which is a really great nonprofit here in the Portland area. And they supplied us with a fabulous marketing intern who has been with their organization for her whole life, pretty much. So yeah, that was that was the beginning steps. Great. And, and I know uh, when I was there, I saw some local business people around from Oregon Public House and some others as well too so it looked like maybe you're working with some of the local businesses too we did yeah we reached out to a lot of local businesses peace and q's market was one of our largest sponsors this year bushwhacker cider has been wonderful we've since moved the market from its original location at woodlong school to right in front of bushwhacker cider in between the cider house and firehouse grill and they have been really supportive they've done cider pressing and things like that for us so great Talk about the community aspect of a farmer's market event. Mm -hmm. Um, That is intangible. It's beyond the access to groceries. It is. It's a beautiful thing to see all of your neighbors come together, to see the businesses there, to support it, to go to neighborhood association meetings and hear people say, thank you so much for doing this. We've been wanting a market for so long. This is great. And we have kids activities and local musicians get to come. And I think the most beautiful thing about it is our market is entirely volunteer run. So everybody does this because they want it to happen. It's it's truly a labor of love. Uh, When I visited the market in mid-July to see a friend play music there, uh, Maria Webster, who's somebody Mm -hmm. probably programmed there, one of the things, it was a 100-degree day, incredibly hot, and uh, my wife bought some ceviche from a local vendor there, and I was like, it was fantastic. It was incredible. <laughs> yes, Very that's incredible. Chino. Chino started Kichana. It's a, a 
brand new business. He's hoping to open up a food cart soon, and he's sort of testing his recipes at our market. So excellent Peruvian food. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've brought Brandon back, the bicyclist, the rolling oasis <coughs> mm -hmm. entrepreneur. Maybe talk a little bit about the relationship with farmers markets uh, around Portland. And were you aware of Brandon, for example? I was not, no. Yeah, so that's new. <laughs> that's new. <laughs> Thank you. How could farmers markets help your enterprise? By letting me table there. <laughs> but it's, it's uh, competitive uh, at some level with them. And so I understand if there's a hesitation to do that. But I'm always happy to talk about events that are happening in my neighborhood's farmers market and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's opportunities to play together well. Good, good. How have you seen kind of some of the growth with your business model currently, too? I mean, I know you said kind of mm -hmm. marketing was a little bit of a challenge at mm -hmm. first and you were learning and this and that. Mm -hmm. But uh, now that you've been doing it a while, what are you seeing there? Sure. I'm learning that one size fits all is tough. I just had a great correspondence with a new customer this morning who said, you know, frankly, I'd be more interested in a $40 box every week. I thought, dang, I like the sound of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've had another customer say similar things. So I'm constantly learning and taking down notes on what can make this even more enriching for my neighbors. I'm working with a couple of food vendors in my neighborhood who are looking to transition their business uh, from operating out of their home to something a little larger. Tatiana with Catracha Coffee, uh, she uh, buys the coffee beans directly from her family down in Central America and sells them at a couple of the farmer's markets. So being able to offer that to my uh, neighbors as well. Uh, there's another catering company and being able to deliver her jam and bread products uh, right to people's doors. It's just another saved trip, another saved thing. Right. Yeah. You talked as well about, Avery, about uh, the marketing and business elements. Are there plenty of business advisors that you've been able to access around the Portland area? What kind of advice did you seek? The best advice that I got, I got from other market managers, from the Lentz International Market to the Hollywood Market Manager, some of the Portland Farmers Market Managers. I haven't talked with any business advisors, no. Do you wish you had? <laughs> I think that that would be really beneficial for our second season. We're just wrapping up the first season now, and there's a huge list of things I'd like to do, and that's that's on it. I think uh, it makes me think of Linda Weston and Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Joining a, a group like that where you can mm -hmm. be around other entrepreneurs, because a lot of times, while you talk to people kind of in your space, you're going to get a lot of good advice. But when you talk to people that do similar things to grow their businesses, but mm -hmm. outside of your space, you can come across some very mm -hmm. good, very good information. How about you, Brandon? Ask the question again. Yeah, well, about the business advice. What sort of business advisors did you have, and do you sure. wish you had more? Uh, it began with listening well to my neighborhood and throwing this idea out to people who had already been working around food access in that neighborhood for many more years than I had been. Uh, I worked closely also with Scott Davison, again, of Vocoform, who has been an entrepreneur in a variety of industries over the years, and he gave consistently thoughtful and creative advice. Excellent. Monica's back. She is in food equity issues at Portland State University, and you wanted to add something, Monica. Yeah, I did. Thanks for the opportunity to pipe in here. Uh, I wanted to actually talk about an initiative that's happening in Rockwood, which is the same neighborhood that Amelia mentioned. The city of Gresham and the Gresham Redevelopment Commission is currently investing in a 
five and a half acre site known as the Catalyst site that used to be an old Fred Meyer. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because what one thing that, um, and I'm working on this project as a consultant with the city, is because we are working to provide this technical assistance that we're talking about. So when we're we're looking for around 15 to 20 micro entrepreneurs that are have that will agree to have a food related business, um, similar to what Avery was describing with Chino's uh, Chino, that opportunities for businesses to incubate before their the opportunity to scale up. So how can these new businesses access capital, especially if they've never had a business in the past? How do they find access to capital through even community banks, like the Albina Community Bank, who provides access to capital for new businesses? If a business wants to move up from a farmer's market to a brick and mortar, how do they find access to capital to be able to do that? As well as developing business plans, marketing plans, feasibility studies, all of the things to get someone on the successful path to a new food business. So I would encourage listeners, if if you are also thinking about food-related entrepreneurship, to check out the Catalyst site website at the City of Gresham. Um, there's some opportunities there, both for training as well as for business startup. And, and do you know if you or they are reaching out to like the Food Innovation Center to partner with them? You know, we haven't reached out uh, officially. Well, I should say that the real we've, we have lots of conversations. Partnership with the Food Innovation Center hasn't been established. Right. However, uh, we've worked a lot with banks, CDFIs, other community entities like MISO that focus on microenterprise and supporting microenterprise. How is our current homeless crisis exacerbating this situation? I mean, these these are uh, communities, food deserts that have been a long time coming and a long time in the making. But I'm wondering if our immediate housing crisis is making it worse. Does anybody? (laughs) (laughs) I think the the explicit tie to the homeless crisis and food deserts might be might be difficult to establish, right? Like if, if if food access in general is, um, we've talked about affordability, right, mm-hmm. as a as a contributor towards an, someone's ability to access foods. One thing that I I talk about within my circles a lot around policy options that could help to support food access is actually situate uh, policies that help to improve people's access to resources. So how do you find people's stable housing? That, in effect, will help down the line with being able to access foods. How do you help to improve minimum wage policy? Mm -hmm. If we, as a food systems movement, were focused on some of these social policies, down the road, we would see improved access, improved food security. What policies would you like to see? You know, I think that there's some really interesting conversations happening right now around how to incentivize healthy food purchases. So um, this is, you know, as we're seeing the Affordable Care Act really impact the amount of community benefit dollars that our coordinated care organizations as well as health systems have, there's opportunity for health systems to partner with food access and food systems efforts to be able to provide it within Medicaid or to provide it within covering it within health insurance that they can then purchase community supported agriculture mm-hmm. or purchase get vouchers to be able to buy food produce to buy produce at farmers markets or to be able to get vouchers to you know shop at my street grocery um, so I think that there are there's some really neat innovation right now in um, bringing together some unusual partners. So it's not just food systems people talking to food systems people, but it's food systems people trying to innovate and really think about breaking down these barriers, bringing in other social issues 
to treat the whole, um, to treat the root cause a little bit more than just treating the symptoms. One of the things I'd like to shout out to to all the entrepreneurs that are in the room is I've, you know, it's been a long time since I heard three founders talk about going out and doing kind of so much market validation ahead of time. Most people are so focused on raising the money, then unleashing the business. But you guys have done a lot of great homework in talking to people ahead of time, finding out kind of what they want, where they want it to go. And that's pretty rare. And I think that's one of the reasons why you guys have done as well as you have. Let's talk about the cost of food. This was something um, that I think, Monica, we were going to talk about earlier, and, and we may have skipped over. True that unhealthy food is often much more affordable, right? I'm going to harken back to a point that Amelia made around even the idea of moving from packaged purchasing to perishable purchasing, that there are some, there are a lot of beliefs around food cost, but it's it's always worth asking what you're comparing. So if you're comparing package to packaged, oftentimes some healthy food options might be more expensive. Like if you're looking at the way it was grown, for example, organic versus conventional packaged food tends to be quite a bit more expensive. Packaged food on a whole, though, is more expensive than whole foods. So when you move into more of a perishable, fresh food diet, there are differences in costs between organic and conventional. However, if you move into the whole foods diet, you see a, a more level or more level cost between the two. And is there any tension between people's ability uh, to purchase fresh produce, for example, and maybe their time and their ability to to cook that food? In other words, convenience food is aptly named. It's convenient. Mm -hmm. And some of the people I'm thinking who would be your customers uh, maybe don't have all the time in the world to cook food. Yeah, I think that that is definitely true. And that's something that we see a lot at the farmer's market as well, people wanting um, prepared foods as opposed to um, fresh produce. And I think something that we've touched on already in the show, the time it takes you if you're taking a bus or a bike to get food, it's already so much more than just stopping on your way home from work to grab food to cook. So you're already spending maybe an hour or two hours more just on the shopping trip so to, to buy food that you then have to come home and prepare for you or your family is, is a lot more work, yes. Okay, this is Andy Evans, <laughs> and he's with My Street Grocery. I'm glad that you, were, you saved us here with your answer for that, Andy. Yeah, well, on My Street Grocery, we have um, a lot of options. First of all, I think education is really important, but one way to do that is um, one thing we call like uh, gateway foods. So... Um, we have on the trolley uh, packaged instant mashed potatoes. So if we get people buying that and they really like it, then, you know, you talk about the cost. We can tell them, well, actually, it's going to save you a lot of money buying actual potatoes that we have. And we can teach you how to make those. You're going to make more of them. It's healthier. We can, you can make it however you want, add spices, however you want to do it. That is so interesting. That's gateway foods. Very cool. Gateway foods. <laughs> Back to college with gateway drugs, right? <laughs> right. That is a, a terrific idea. And then what sort of support does Whole Foods give you as far as uh, instructions and workshops and things like that with your customers? Well, you know, we, we can cater to our customers. So depending on what community we go to, we get to know our customers. So then, um, you know, like Amelia talked about, you know, we... We live by the food is community, so we you know, get to know them, we get to know their needs, and they feel comfortable with us, then they start asking us about 
you know, hey, what do you eat? You know, um, you guys seem to eat healthy food. How do you prepare it? And so, you know, I'll tell somebody, you know, next week, I'll bring you some recipes. Here's some other things, you know, try this. And we build that relationship and then we're able to educate them through that. And do you guys work in trying to do workshops within some of the stores or to do it on the cart itself, on the vehicle itself? Or how do you, how do you do that? Um, yeah, we, I mean, we do a little more personal on the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, we're out at our markets, but our stores also have a lot of um, resources, um, pamphlets also. Yeah, they'll do classes. Um, depending on each store, they have a lot of different activities. How many vehicles are there now? Just the one? Just the one. It's a trolley. Are there plans to expand? Eventually, like Amelia mentioned earlier, we're really focused on this one right now and serving this community. Um, you, I, there's something else I want to say. Earlier, you're talking about affordability, and um, we had mentioned vouchers. That is actually something that we're doing with uh, health clinics, where the clinics are able to offer vouchers to their patients through grants. And so those patients can come back every single week and get vouchers um, where they can spend and do weekly shopping with those vouchers. So it helps with affordability. And we do that in northwest Portland where there are some people that are displaced. So they're able to still get access to good nourishing foods even if they don't have, you know, a place to stay at the moment. And that's outside of like a WIC program, voucher program, I take it then? It's, it's yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So you bring up an interesting point kind of on that too, which is Whole Foods isn't exactly known for being the most affordable place, and yet you guys are about affordability and what you do. And I know Whole Foods is making some movements towards lowering prices and doing that, but that had to be a little bit of a disconnect at first when you guys were going out there. How did you deal with that issue? Uh, well, yeah, there's the perception of Whole Foods, and then, you know, there's a lot of realities to Whole Foods. You know, this is a partnership that was based around the core values that Whole Foods was established on, um, which is, you know, providing nourishment to the community, feeding people healthy foods. So it was, you know, it was always a good partnership. And yeah, um, it is just a matter of talking to people and building those relationships to help, you know, bridge that gap of, of what, you know, Whole Foods partnership is. Great discussion. And we've heard a lot of interesting ideas around solutions to people's access to healthy groceries. Thank you so much, Andy Evans and Amelia Pape with My Street Grocery. Glad you could join us today. Brandon Rhodes with Rolling Oasis, Avery Lewis with the Woodlawn Farmers Market, and Monica Cuneo uh, with Portland State University Health Equity. Thank you so much to you all for being here. Portland Radio Project, you've been listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show or stream us online at prp.fm. Thanks to our sponsor, Albina Community Bank, a full-service independent community bank and a proud supporter of PRP.